Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. What I'd like to do for the introduction is talk to you a little bit about the center that we have here that is part of the Institute that is concentrating, focusing its efforts on, on integrated energy efficient design. The center has several topics that it's interested in on the, on the side of, let's say, applications in energy efficiency. On the top left, you're seeing an integrated building. This is courtesy of our, um, our, our partners from the United Technologies Corporation. Um, you're seeing a building within which uh, people are moving around, uh, air conditioning, cooling, heating, lights. Uh, data centers, everything is working together to make our life hard in the context of energy reduction. Um, on the left, you're seeing a diesel engine from, from Ford. Um, certainly, uh, the, the new mandate on energy efficiency is going to provide for a lot of work inside the, the automotive industry in order to try to meet that uh, at the 35 gallons as, it, as it's now um, set into um, law. Um, energy storage is one of the outstanding problems in, in uh, electric power grid context. Energy harvesting and micropower off-grid generation. Data center cooling that uh, we are working on with our colleagues in, uh, in the computer science department. And also, last but not least, uh, the issue of the smart grid. How do we make the grid smart, efficient, so that we waste as little of the energy as we can? Our purpose and, and, and way of doing things is quite interdisciplinary. The faculty that we have within the center span a, a huge range of topics, starting from controls to dynamics, dynamical systems, to uh, computer science, to uh, microfluidics and sensors when you want to measure, for example, whether your energy efficient design is also bringing discomfort to people inside a building. You want things like CO2 and humidity sensors. Um, it has two National Academy members, three Sloan Fellows, numerous other awards. Um, and it is a context within which research in, in uh, research and development in energy efficiency can be done. So on this slide, I'd like to present sort of the core idea of what the capabilities are. Sometimes the issues in computation and control are somewhat hidden. And uh, you, you don't, you don't uh, see them very well. But if you just take a look at your cell phone, um, the reason why it's so small is essentially because of an algorithm. It is hidden. That part of the of the issue, but it's in some sense visible in 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 size, or rather invisible in size. Um, U.S. buildings produce 48 percent of carbon emissions, and I'm sure everybody in this room actually knows these numbers. I still get a chill every time I look at them. 70 percent, uh, 71 percent of U.S. electricity, and so on and so forth. Uh, buildings also constitute sources of large pollution, like the one on the left. Uh, from an industrial plant. Our center is trying to think about what the core causes of these kinds of things are and how can we affect these core causes in order to change the situation. Uh, what I've shown you on the right is actually a simulation from a recent collaboration that we had with Princeton and some um, uh, colleagues at the, 
um, uh, at the Royal Institute in Sweden, uh, where we have taken one of these plumes and then reconstituted it in its core components so that perhaps you can take a look at one of these core components and say, let me see how I can actually diminish that output of CO2 by hitting at the core of what the spread is. What are we trying to do and why does it matter? Uh, here is the split of commercial energy end usage. Uh, lighting uh, leads space heating, space cooling are big items. But there is another, another perspective, and that is that, and this is, a, this is from our colleagues at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, and that is that the building is really an integrated system. It has all these components like the cooling towers, fuel cells, roofs, PV panels, and so on and so forth, variable air volume boxes, and down at this corner of it is the integrated controls with real-time modeling, fault diagnostics, and optimization. In some sense, in this point in time, this is a little bit of a dream. You really don't have a unified set of algorithms con for control and computation of this kind of thing, where the building can be made very, very efficient so that the, so that the different sides of the building don't fight each other when, when they operate. How well can we do? Can we do 70% better in new buildings, 90% better, 50% better in retrofits? There are certain things that you can do that are going to bring you to 20 to 30% almost immediately. What are the kind of things that are going to uh, usher in these kinds of numbers? Well, one part of it is an integrated design. How is it done today? What are the limitations of current practice? Here is a, here is a report from NREL on uh, six different really high-end buildings uh, in which an attempt has been made to um, do a net zero energy design. Uh, this one is quite unique at the Zion National Park um, down here. The unfortunate conclusion of the study is that all of these buildings actually underperformed by 25 to 75%. And the basic reasons for this are um, stated verbatim in small caps, and then I sort of emphasized a couple of quotes um, for the purpose of um, indicating that almost all of the reasons for underperformance of these buildings is, was, was within the need of integrated design. Uncertainties, um, design teams were too optimistic about the how, how the occupants would behave, um, Plug loads were often greater than design predictions, and so on and so forth. This is the piece that engineering can solve, good engineering can solve in the long term. But it's not just for the unique buildings. Actually, to some extent, there are a lot of buildings that are coming up that are not unique in any way or form. Uh, we need to understand what kind of a design do we need to have for, a, um, let's say, a zero energy building. What is new in the approach that we are taking here and why do we think it's going to be successful? The current efforts give you a little bit of a dashboard kind of a picture like, uh, like you have in Prius as far as the energy, energy consumption in your home or perhaps energy consumption in a large building uh, is concerned. Let's think about energy efficiency cruise control in this context in which the occupants are actually not required to pay attention 24-7 um, to, to the exact behavior of the, of the system, but the system can perhaps self-tune and self-commission. For that, we need best components and best integration tools. And we also need to look broader. We need to look out of the building and into 
the whole power grid. I'm going to talk a little bit about it for, um, in a second. We had a program here uh, for the last couple of years and in, in collaboration with United Technologies within which we have studied problems of similar complexity uh, sponsored by DARPA. The uncertainty, as I pointed out in the design of these previous buildings, was one of the key problems in, in design, engineering design. Uh, we have developed a range of tools that enable us to manage that complexity. There are tools like those that um, tell you how to change a communication protocol without affecting the whole system. There are tools that tell you um, how to prevent the system into going an unwanted oscillation. Uh, it is a fact that most of the systems of cooling and heating actually go into unwanted oscillation um, that prevent them from operating at an optimal point and you're losing quite a bit of energy because of these fluctuations. There are tools that are also going to be able to give you prediction as to what are the optimal types of things to do in order to make um, the whole system energy efficient. And we're talking here about tools that can deal with thousands and thousands of components and thousands and thousands of uncertain variables. Um, just briefly, uh, we, we do worry about adding alternative sources to, to classical uh, uh, energy um, sources. Uh, we model those and we want to stay within this blue trajectory that is inside that picture that is not only energy efficient but safe as opposed to the red one. And we can compute these things very efficiently. Um, in summary, uh, this is a picture in which, a, a movie in which the air conditioning is turned on and then the window closes up because there was sensing that was done that said, well, the window is open and air conditioning is on and that's wasting energy. If you think about it, that should be a pretty simple thing to do. One part of the system communicates to, to the other that, you know, the window is open and air conditioning is on, so therefore turn it off. It might not be that simple. The outside air might actually be cooler than the inside in the evening. You might need to measure a little bit more than just the, the, the fact that the two systems are turned on at the same time and you need some kind of an integrated brain inside the building to tell it that uh, perhaps, you know, joint effects of air conditioning, a little bit of air conditioning, and a little bit of outside air is going to do better than just any single component together. That's one point. And then the other one is, and that actually goes into the next two talks, it is not just the home, it is not just the residential building, it is all the way out to the neighborhood scale and the power grid scale. We need to have these tools that actually are able to design better at the integrated system scale. If we want to have power from the grid to the house and vice versa, where the houses are actually producing some of the energy locally and efficiently, we need to start thinking about the integrated design of this thing now. We cannot have it done uh, in, a, in an ad hoc way. Um, for that purpose, we have established a, a sequence of relationships with various partners, funding agencies like DARPA and Department of Energy, uh, international partnerships with people in Sweden and, and Asia, commercial partners such as United Technologies and Ford, and national labs, in particular, uh, Arun Majumdar is here at the Berkeley Lab, with whom, together with United Technologies, we have one of these first seed projects on integrated design and it's called Hyperbrick. So with that, I'd like to introduce the next speaker. 
Uh, it's Jack Sal, who is the Director of Environment and Resource Sustainability at Southern California Edison, and he's going to talk to us about electric ut utility sustainability and integrated systems. So this framework here, that, that this, this uh, picture kind of shows what we consider then to be our, our system. And just to review to catch people up is, is we have the customer in their domain here, and the relationship with the customer is fundamentally changing, uh, and I'll go into that a little bit more. And then you have distribution, transmission, and generation through here. The really challenging part from our industry side is the introduction of generation sources that are not fully under our control and the introduction of customer behaviors, which we are encouraging, where they have increased choices to make with regards to the utilization of the system. The key to that is these little yellow boxes here, which is the ability to store electricity in ways that we haven't been able to do in the past in order to somehow mitigate some of the, un the variability that's associated with this. And it's that model that I want to spend a little bit of time uh, talking with you about today. So the evolution then of the system has been that we've gone from a system that was relatively uh, straightforward and under control to one that incorporates a lot of different choices that both people and equipment get to make. And the key to this is the ability to send price signals to either equipment or to people to, so that they actually have the ability to modify their behaviors in a way that is uh, in their best interest. But as we go forward, what we're really looking at is a set of systems of systems and trying to find a way to, to manage that and to build control onto that is one of our uh, key challenges. So then in our vocabulary, the way that we talk about that is through these five sorts of interconnecting uh, uh, systems. It, it starts with us with regards to customers and, and the customers making specific solutions or specific decisions about how they're going to operate. And I think both the, uh, the next speaker and then tomorrow, Nancy Jenkins from our organization will be addressing that issue uh, in much more detail than I will be. Uh, smart metering gives the capability of both to provide an interface between the home area networks that will be created and also the ability for this metering system to interface with our systems on the distribution transmission side. I will say a little bit about, but not spend too much time in, on how all of this is going to change the fundamental nature of what our workforce is going to look like because the tools and the needs and the capabilities of the workforce of the future has to be able to match the technologies and the systems that we have in the future. And then the grid control, asset optimization, and then the, the construction of the uh, uh, energy efficient renewables uh, and storage capability. So when we refer to a smart grid, we're referring to how the whole system then uh, comes together and works together. The household of the future then is looking like a series of capabilities both within the, uh, the appliances that you get and also the information that you're getting from those appliances with regards to how you're going to operate in the future 
and a, a series of additional distributed generation capabilities and battery storage capabilities within the house helping to manage things like the uh, plug-in hybrid vehicles. And this then becomes the real driving source of a lot of the change that has to be made. Now, much of this technology isn't where we want it today. Specifically, the, the home energy storage systems are still something that needs to be uh, worked on and developed. And the hope for the plug-in electric vehicles is still not fully realized. But the ability to manage when you charge the vehicles and the ability for those vehicles to form as storage systems for the house is something that is integral to making this work. The, the metering and the abilities for, to get feedback both ways on that system, both into the house and into you as a customer and going back into the, to the distribution system is going to be key to this success. This is a slide that shows the electricity consumption per capita over time down here, electricity up here. Uh, and the reason I put this up here is to emphasize that the energy efficiency programs can work, and we have a real tra strong track record in California of getting really good success from those. And that's why from a foundational perspective and from a, uh, an opportunity for us to make real progress going forward, this provides us with an exciting possibility for us to meet some of these challenges that we've been talking about today. This is the, uh, the energy crisis of the 70s, and at that point there were a whole uh, uh, host of initiatives designed to create both alternative energies and energy efficiencies. And this is the trajectory of the line of California after that, and this is the trajectory of the line in the United States after that. And um, it's, it's a very encouraging set of information to, to be able to see what can be done if you get the alignment, as uh, Commissioner Grunick was speaking of, if you get the alignment of policy along with the R&D the, uh, the that needs to be done and the, the uh, activities of private industry and your customers in order to embrace these kind of activities. And so I just want to emphasize the, the uh, importance of and the ability for us to be very successful in the regards to energy efficiency and demand response. As, uh, as we have talked about, the problem then becomes one of how do you integrate these systems here where you're no longer speaking of a house, but you're now speaking of neighborhoods, and that's then uh, what we're trying to go ahead and address. So this slide here depicts what we're looking for in terms of uh, the, the technologies that are on now on the generation, on the transmission side. And what we really are looking to try and do is both change the environmental footprint of the generation so that you can uh, uh, address those, those kind of global needs. But also you're, what, you, what a consequence of that is is that you end up with a set of systems that instead of having a handful of generation sources, you will literally have millions of generation sources. And integrating that back into the system so you have, still have the reliable uh, and economic power becomes a real challenging. Uh, again, we're optimistic that these systems can come together 
and function in a, in a rational way, but that still is a challenge yet to be, to be addressed. So the kind of things then that we're struggling with and that we're trying to address uh, are to get more data management and more data collection throughout the whole system so that you have efficiencies that are built into this, but also so that you have better command and control uh, of those, uh, 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 those capabilities. And then beyond the transmission, you then have to move because you have so much interface going on within that, the, uh, from the customer side, the substation will become a, a, a source of a lot of this activity. And again, notice the, uh, the ability to have some amount of uh, uh, controls that are in that area and also some ability to do uh, a distributed uh, generation on this side and also uh, battery storage. Finally, last point down here is that if all this is going to make sense, all of your transmission and your household activities will make sense, you also then have to change the way that you run a distribution circuit uh, and so that you can manage it at the local level. And that's the, again, is a very exciting uh, aspect of this for us is how you uh, tie that together. This is an example or a, a cartoon, if you would, if, of speaking about what we call our circuit of the future and how the distribution circuit is changing instead of being one that is basically providing uh, uh, power at will. It has a lot more command and control capabilities. It has a lot more ability to, uh, to uh, reroute and to, to sense where faults are, the ability to repair itself without uh, 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 line crews going out to, to do that function is all part of this idea of the circuit of the future. When you move back up to the transmission side, you're talking about very large amounts of power that are, that are being pushed around. And one of the activities that's at the national level is to tie the grid together so that you can find generation sources that are, say, wind or solar generation that are in one part of the country can be used to achieve reliabilities of those generations in another part of the country. But in order to do that, we're going to need to have the, the transmission system connected in a better way than has been historically. The, the systems and the, the layering of the systems are really designed to do a couple of things on the transmission side. But one of the key things is to, to given the variability that it's inherent in these new systems, to prevent catastrophic uh, failures that cause the large-scale uh, blackouts that we've experienced in the northeast uh, part of the United States. And so part of the advantage of these grid control systems are the smart grid. In addition to the efficiencies that you get, you also get the ability to, uh, to manage uh, uh, system failures. And this also then moves down from both the transmission side down into the uh, to the distribution side, one of our highest priorities consistently is, is to provide reliable electric power because it's so important from, a, from a, a customer's perspective to know that there will be electricity available and so they can, uh, people can use it when they need to use it. And so there are a variety of approaches that are, are to address that, all of which are part of this, the, the concept of the, the smart grid. Again, uh, Nancy Jenkins later will be talking more about the, the, uh, the customer side, 
but I did want to focus on the advantages that are coming with regards to uh, meters that are much more capable of interfacing with people, interfacing with equipment that's within uh, their systems. But I think most importantly from an environmental perspective, the smart metering capability will provide price signals, and these price signals will give an opportunity for people to make more conscious decisions about when they want to use electricity and when they don't, and I think it'll drive behaviors that will be positive in terms of where we're trying to go uh, uh, forward. And so there'll be a combination of both new sorts of information, which is more similar to what you saw on the Prius in terms of your energy usage, and also there'll be the ability for you to interface with your, uh, uh, with your uh, uh, smart appliances as well. Part of the difficulty of doing all this in a rational sort of way relates to trying to plan for the generation because as we've worked back up the system from the customer through distribution transmission, at some level you have to have a, a, have a generation planning scenario. And I'm throwing in this slide to, to represent sometimes just how difficult that can be. Uh, this, uh, this black line was our peak load, uh, system peak load over this, this time frame. And things started happening this last year because of the, uh, the economic situation that substantially changed that. And you can see our different scenarios have, have changed substantially over, over the time. And right now we're going through a time where our peak load is not expected to grow uh, this year or next, but it will again do this trajectory. But if it takes a number of years, up to five to 10 years to get generation online, that means then that we have to start on that planning process for peak loads that are out in these years uh, currently. And it's made a more difficult challenge by the fact that uh, introducing new technologies like uh, uh, wind and solar at utility scale that are not is under, our, under our direct control means that sometimes the peak capability has to be more than the planned peak load. Um, there are a lot of challenges with regards to meeting the efficient and uh, uh, resource efficient and sustainable uh, generation. Uh, we're currently uh, at 16% uh, in terms of where we are as a utility. There are a number of initiatives to try to get to, I think the number is going to end up being around 33% by 2020. Uh, the, and there are a variety of different things that are, that are uh, in place with this. It's a substantially different environment now with the change in administration in Washington, and so I don't think it's going to be a situation where California is making these initiatives independent of the federal activities, and I think you're going to see an increased uh, evolution between both what's going on in California at the federal level and at the international level. But it's a, it's a very large challenge both to, to meet the uh, renewable portfolio standards and also try and provide for the... Uh, the, the continual uh, uh, system load uh, increases as well, while trying to keep the rates at a, at a reasonable level. This, I think, is a particularly promising uh, option for us, and this is a, what, what, as opposed to household uh, solar, this is what we call utility-scale rooftop solar. This is a warehouse in the, uh, out by Ontario Airport and as, if you've been out there, you realize that there's a lot of logistics terminals out there, and it's a very uh, large set of these kind of roofs that are available. Uh, putting a solar uh, power plants on top of these kind of roofs have a number of advantages, uh, one of which is that 
the solar is directly where one of our peak uh, load areas is, which is in the inland uh, part of the, the, uh, our communities. But in addition to that, you don't have to, to uh, impact uh, land uh, in, the, in the deserts or other areas because you're basically using an unused space at the top of the roof. But you also have advantages that you don't have line losses associated with transmission because the, the, the system here goes directly into our distribution system. Uh, so there will be uh, a large amount of these type of uh, urban rooftop solar utility scale systems, which I think will go a long way to make the whole system much more efficient and much more uh, easy for, uh, to be managed. I did want to mention just a few comments about the changes that we're talking about will require changes in our workforce uh, in that whether or not it's the, the role of the engineer or the role of the line crews, our grid operators or the system planners, they all will have a much more complicated set of activities in terms of what they're trying to manage to and what the kind of activities that they have to take responsibility for. It's an exciting opportunity, clearly, but it's not, uh, it's not at all uh, uh, comfortable for some of our, our current workforce to see some of the innovation that's coming in because they're going to have to retool in order to be able to be as effective in this work environment. Another opportunity that this, some of this technology provides is the ability for us to work uh, at, at a safer level. And this is very important to us in, in our, our industry. And there's a lot of this technology and a lot of the stuff that will be coming forward, which provides a much higher level of safety for all of our organizations. And I think that'll be an additional advantage as well. And in addition to that, I think there's going to be some productivity improvements in terms of just a greater use of, of com computer command and controls and those kind of systems. So finally, this is a, a slide or a cartoon that tries to summarize the, the, the high-level uh, conversation that I've kind of led us through in that what we're trying to do is integrate a variety of, of systems that historically operated in, in their own individual silos. So whether or not it's the generation side or the customer uh, side in terms of getting uh, the energy efficiency, the transmission side, our internal operations in terms of trying to get our supply chain, our fleet, our buildings, and then the utilization of IT to tie all this stuff together is the, the system of systems that we're working on. This won't be something that can be done without good partnerships uh, in our communities uh, both at the planning level and also at the regulatory level to make sure all this stuff happens. And clearly it won't happen unless you have uh, a, a very healthy RD&D uh, machine which is continuing to put out the kind of uh, solutions that are, are ready to be tested, or not tested, but uh, deployed in this sort of environment. And what we're ultimately looking for, though, is to uh, once again provide safe, reliable, economic, and sustainable electricity for, for our customers. Uh, with that, I will close, and uh, if I have time for questions, I'll take a few questions. Well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I did graduate from this campus, so it's a pleasure to be back and have the opportunity to speak to you here. Um, I'm going to be speaking about some, some uh, content that has a fair amount of similarity with what the last couple of speakers uh, discussed, so I'll go through some of the common material uh, pretty quickly and not, uh, not repeat that. Uh, before getting into the content, just for those of you who may not be aware, uh, the two Semper Energy utilities are San Diego Gas and Electric and Southern California Gas Company. 
SDG&E is the smallest of the three investor-owned utilities with 1.3 million customers down in the San Diego region there. Uh, Southern California Gas Company is the largest natural gas distribution company in the U.S. with 5 million uh, meters uh, extending from around San Luis Obispo uh, all the way down. So this, this picture here depicts a view. It's, it's, it relates largely to smart grid, as you were just hearing about, slightly different uh, graphic, and, and I'll try and add uh, a little bit of additional perspective to what you just heard about. First of all, one of the main things we see about the uh, energy future as it's evolving is that uh, from today where we have largely one-way flows of information and energy, uh, information flowing um, from customers back to us through meter reads, billing them, energy flowing from us to them. In the future, throughout the grid at all scales from uh, large uh, central systems, as you see on the left side of this graph, all the way out to the homes and businesses with small-scale resources, we see in the future that we'll have two-way flows of energy and two-way flows of communication that together will actually enable this whole, whole concept of zero net that we'll be talking about a little bit. Uh, let me address uh, also a couple things. Uh, the question of uh, cost for the smart grid was, uh, was just mentioned. All three of the uh, investor-owned utilities in California are deploying smart meter systems. Those, will be, those deployments will be complete by 2011 to 2013, depending on schedules. That's the first piece uh, you could think of the smart grid. That's the sort of foundation upon which that's built. The cost of those systems is you know, between one and a couple of hundred dollars per customer. I've heard current estimates for deploying smart grid, depending on how much total functionality there is, from $700 per, per meter up to 2500 And that depends a lot on how fast technology evolves and how the cost and performance curves of some of these components comes down. So it's very central to some of the discussion today. Um, many of the uh, components and devices that were discussed um, are sub-elements that will not just go into people's homes and businesses, but also will, will be deployed out in the grid to support sensing and communicating and then inside the home. So the concept of uh, smart home has already been discussed. So what you see here is, is a slightly different depiction of that smart home. Um, as far as timing is concerned, we haven't talked too much about that. The, um, as I said, the smart grid deployments have already begun, or sorry, the smart meter deployments have already begun and will be completed over the next two or three years. Time estimates to achieve smart home, smart grid functionality range between probably 10 to 20 years, depending. Uh, the stimulus uh, funding has, has increased dramatically, the interest in smart grid, and I think it's also changed people's perspectives on timelines. So, now, with, with the stimulus and the raise in awareness and urgency around this, people are talking about moving faster. But the timing of the smart grid actually will dictate, to a certain degree, the timing of zero net, because this um, energy infrastructure that we, um, that we were talking about here, in order to enable zero net, to the extent that we don't mean that on a building-by-building building basis, so that each building needs to generate and store its own energy um, requires actually that there's an ability to flow information and power across the grid at scales that are much smaller than we currently have on the system. So smart grid and zero net 
kind of go hand in hand. At this point in time, the initial demonstrations of um, community scale uh, microgrids, so at the neighborhood level, are just beginning. Uh, so the, uh, the stimulus program will fund eight regional demonstrations at up to about $100 million each. So that will be a way of demonstrating full end-to-end functionality for smart grid capability. At the present time, there's four or five um, smart grid demonstrations that have already begun across the country. But I think the point is that we're still at the foundation stage with, uh, with this functionality. One important point for the Institute here and all the, all the people here that are involved in energy efficiency is that the priority of energy efficiency in state policy is actually mandated in, in uh, CPUC policy, actually state energy policy that was put in place, uh, I believe it was 2004 when this was enacted, but uh, the Energy Commission and the CPUC established a loading order or a preference order in which resources should be procured or, or deployed and energy efficiency is at the very top. So when selecting resources from a policy point of view, utilities are required to first look to energy efficiency, next to renewables, following that clean fossil, and everything else down the line. The role of utilities in energy efficiency, Commissioner Grunich talked quite a bit about, um, about the, the uh, state strategic plan and the role of utilities, but fundamentally, uh, our role is to operationalize the state's policies on, on energy efficiency by first supporting introduction of new technologies through identification, testing, piloting, and sponsored R&D. And then once technologies come into the pipeline to promote adoption with customers through education and through administering incentives uh, to customers for those adoptions. And in some sense, we look at this as, as acting as the agent for customers in aggregate to identify promising technologies and helping uh, make sure that, uh, that you know, in, in context of what Commissioner Grunich was saying, that we, we help promote rational economic decisions, meaning that you know, six-month paybacks uh, will pretty much keep most technologies out of the market and through incentive programs, education, and other active outreach programs, we, we seek to get uh, adoption on a, uh, a longer-term uh, payback track record in the state has been outstanding, as you've seen uh, from the per capita energy curves. And, um, you know, I don't know what that would be on a, on a normalized basis, but I think we've probably achieved something like 30 to 50 percent um, reduction relative to some business-as-usual base case. These four um, big, bold strategies, as Commissioner Grunich referred to them, have already been discussed. It puts a time point on on the goal in the state for zero net energy at the commercial and residential scales. So as, as was mentioned before, the goal is for uh, zero net at the residential level for uh, new construction in 2020 and for commercial in 2030. Um, in addition, although the state doesn't have a goal for, for um, overall net, uh, net zero, federal government has a uh, carbon neutral goal of 2030 and for commercial buildings has established 2050 as the uh, point in time for uh, complete zero net for commercial buildings. So um, formatting is a little bit off on this chart, but what it does emphasize is that the best designs 
today are about twice as efficient as the uh, installed capital base that we have. So depending on what, what the average age of a building would be, say 10 to 20 years, this is showing that we're reducing energy consumption or improving energy efficiency uh, by 50% about every 15 years or so. So if we were to continue that goal or that progress, this goal of, of zero net by 2020, you can see we'd, we'd be about halfway there with the, with the pure energy efficiency pieces, leaving um, the other half to come from distributed energy resources. I think most of this has been covered in previous uh, discussions, but the elements, you know, the, the building blocks, and I think we need to use all of them to, to achieve the goals, but energy management and, and the smart home, I think, are a very important piece of it. The smart home, as has been discussed in the last few, few presentations, actually, by controlling devices, even at their current efficiency, uh, people estimate in the range of 15% reduction in energy use is possible. Interesting, uh, regarding the discussion about consumer behavior, the limited research that's been done in that regard indicates that, at least for your average residential customer, there's a sort of a novelty effect where people will pay close attention to an energy display and make significant changes in how they use energy for a period of time, uh, depending on the customer, but a few weeks, a month, or something like that, and then eventually the novelty wears off and they sort of go back to different behaviors. So what probably is necessary for all of us to work and achieve the goals as I think has been discussed, is to be able to make this re relatively invisible to customers so that over time, home automation for most people will be adopted because of comfort, convenience, entertainment, and these types of things. The energy management piece of it for most needs to be put in the background, programmed um, uh, with smart devices and, and logic so that um, they don't really need to intervene and the, and the buildings operate in an automated way. Then... Uh, efficient building envelope, uh, a lot of discussion this morning about lighting. Um, Commissioner Grunich mentioned HVAC as another big piece of this, and then the, the, the uh, renewable energy and other distributed energy resources, and finally, um, intelligent design tools. So this uh, topic of the session here was uh, efficient building, so I did want to show a couple of examples of technologies that show a lot of promise. Uh, cool roofs, uh, windows, and insulation um, will be critical. Um, one of the promising points is that cool roofs and various types of window design are retrofittable, so those will probably be a significant part of the retrofit solution in addition to um, uh, retrofit insulation and then adoption of smart appliances as those uh, become available. So I already talked a little bit about this. Um, I think that in order to get to a zero net within 10 years or even 15, 20 years, this distributed generation and energy storage is a very big piece of it. So, you know, one question would be, if you look at 2020 as your time point, are we likely to get there? I think for new construction, certainly that's possible. Um, but look, looking at the adoption of photovoltaics in the state, and projecting that forward. In the 2020 timeframe, we'll probably be in the range of 10 to 15% of the households with solar. So, you know, I don't think we're going to be getting close to 100% um, zero net, but even this, you know, even say 10% of the households would be a pretty significant accomplishment uh, by that timeframe. Shown here are a whole collection of adoption curves for things. I think this is probably 
related to a certain extent to the, to the question of photovoltaics, but also relates to smart home functionality, how fast people will adopt it. Most of the functionality that you've seen in, in the different presentations today exists at a either prototype or early commercial stage. So you can find today um, full smart home uh, setups at a demonstration level. But this, you know, if you look at all these different adoption curves, they tend to show that, you know, for the very most rapidly adopted consumer-related devices, you know, five years would be the absolute fastest, you know, sort of TV was adopted in a time frame like that. But most of these are in, in the 10, 10 years on average up to 20 years or so. So part of this is, is as it comes to voluntary consumer adoption, is um, being realistic about what the uh, uptake uh, rates are going to be with people. And um, the last point here on policy flexibility is that to, and as Commissioner Grunich mentioned, as we see how technology is evolving and see what consumer behavior is, um, look at this in terms of a feedback loop and have some policy flexibility in what, uh, you know, what points in time we establish goals and mandates and adjust them if needed. So on the whole topic of zero net, there is the question of at what scale. And certainly if you, if you mandate or target zero net at the individual building level, uh, you tend to be prescribing technologies, you're prescribing scale, and there's uh, only so many ways in which you can achieve zero net at the, at the building level. So you know, the question is, how far do we go? There's a lot of... Uh, a lot of effort right now on microgrids and things of that nature to have zero net at the community level. That probably makes significant sense. But then at the regional level, certainly the, the um, central station renewable resources that were discussed in the prior presentation are an important part of the solution. As they become more cost-effective, they also help make all, all of this uh, energy ecology cost-effective. So I think you know, zero net also needs to be viewed at least at the, uh, at the regional level. And we, we need to focus on the ends of low environmental footprint and efficient use of energy and have some flexibility in definition of zero net. We should let technology and economics drive exactly what the average scale for this zero net. And smart grid is critical to all this because this the smart grid will enable flows of, of energy at virtually all scales from regional down to smallest. I heard a term this week for the first time, nano grid, which means building. So either nanogrid or building, your choice. So what are the keys to success? You know, critical to this type of forum, an innovation pipeline is very, very critical, and to support that, the universities and venture capitalists are extremely important. And to, to direct the right kind of effort, um, in the earlier discussion with Commissioner Grinick, it was discussed about, you know, are we going to sustain this? There have been instances of, of alternate fuel vehicles even the original foray into renewable energy where the policy didn't sustain long enough to really have the energy take hold or, or the uh, industry take hold. So first is focus. And in the area of energy efficiency, of course, climate change policy is becoming pretty well entrenched. You know, there could be a reversion, but I think it's looking less likely. A lot of focus on energy independence. So that provides focus. Funding is critical as well. A big, big piece of the stimulus package is related to energy efficiency. And then to... Um, 
minimize the cycle time on development and deployment of technologies. And, and the green ones are places where, where the utilities play into this. A big part of what we're uh, charged with by the commission is to work with universities, entrepreneurs, other parties to help um, demonstrate and, and commercialize the technologies. Then the other piece is consumer adoption, where education and outreach is critical. Um, incentives, because as has been discussed, people tend to be somewhat, um, you know, tend, tend to uh, require much shorter payback terms than pure economics might often dictate, so incentives become important. Standards, certainly for new buildings. And then just, you know, there is a natural soak time for the general public to sort of get used to things and start, start adopting them. And I already talked about this importance of flexible policy. If you look at climate change policy, policy on renewables, energy efficiency, all, all the things, smart grid too, there's this trade-off of, you know, do we need to set an ambitious goal and say we're going to have a complete smart grid by 2015 or 2020, establish that as a target, but recognize that the, the cost and performance curves of these technologies, even with focus and funding, you know, may not be exactly 2015, maybe it's 2017, so we're big advocates of, of, of a little bit of... Uh, policy flexibility. That's it. There's a fascinating chart you showed where you list uh, sort of history of consumer adoption of various pieces of technology. I'm not sure if I have a question or a food for thought, but it strikes me that most of the items on there are in some sense very discretionary. Uh, and I'm wondering if you guys have looked at, at what kind of proxies you have where the adoption is in some sense regulatory driven or, or much more financially driven than consumer preference driven. It's a good point. Um, I think the, the, the smart home um, in total, a good portion of it will be discretionary, I'm sure, because you know, it, it's more likely going to be comfort and entertainment and things like that and have some energy along with it. But... Um, yeah, things like uh, uh, you know, fuel, uh, you know, fleet average, fuel economy, uh, building code, things like that, uh, you can look at as well. Where you know, a, a particular timeline is put out, you could drive that to be faster. And I think you know, there, w within this broader area, it, it is a combination of um, standards, um, mandatory aspects, and voluntary ones. So we have renewable portfolio standard. Um, greenhouse gas cap, those are mandatory. Um, you know, there's going to be building standards put in place, but a fair amount of this in-home piece is going to be behavioral or voluntary. Um, to get rapid adoption, it may be that significant incentives are required and also that parties, utilities, or third parties take a lot of the headache away from the consumer and just you know, put in a simple basic functionality type of energy management system issue A and program it for them and, you know, because left to itself, it, it, you know, if people talk about 2020, so roughly a 10-year time, time frame, it seems long, but it's really not if you look at some of these and consider that somebody's desire to have a PC is probably more than to have, uh, you know, a refrigerator cycling device or something like that. Uh, yeah, uh, regarding plug-in hybrids and the uh, grid, any, any way to say whether the uh, current grid is uh, capable of supplying the power needs uh, to provide the recharging uh, necessary for a, a plug-in hybrid car? I've seen various, various estimates on that. Um, 
there's the issue of, of you know, capacity on the grid, but also time of use. But assuming that vehicles charge off-peak, I've read a statistic that said 73% of the demand for an entire U.S. auto fleet, 73% of the demand for that could be met with uh, generation resources that we already have. So a big part of that is um, putting in rate structures and automation that allow the vehicles to actually be uh, charged off-peak. Because, you know, if, if they're charging on peak, another sort of factoid I've heard is that, you know, two vehicles will require a transformer upgrade, you know, on the distribution system if they're charging simultaneously. So, you know, again, there's a lot of um, innovation that can go on in terms of, you know, how, how that vehicle charging is automated. And I think there's a lot of opportunity to cross-share between, you know, some of the basic device-level um, research that that's been discussed here that may have one application in mind but can go across. Another thing I forgot to mention during my discussion, energy efficiency on the transmission and distribution grid itself, particularly distribution, is something that you know, interested people should take a look at that are working in this domain because 10, 12, 15% of the energy produced is, is, uh, is lost in delivery and you know, there is a lot of automation and control that can happen at the distribution level that can reduce that number. So as you kind of think about energy efficiency overall, beyond the buildings, you know, think about perhaps the grid itself. Thank you. Unlike soccer edition where PG&E is so temporized, in a unique position to you, utilize the gas as energy resources. Uh, what do you think about the usage of the gas uh, in the context of smart house in the future? Uh, Say it again, please. Hmm? How do you think about the gas, usage of the gas in the context of the smart home? Utilization so, of natural gas in the context of smart home? Uh, yes, please. Well, you know, we, we see natural gas as the cleanest among fossil fuels and an important part of you know, bridging to whatever the future uh, energy solutions may be. So what we are focused on currently in terms of our R&D activities in that domain is energy efficiency, so meaning, you know, reduce uh, natural gas and electricity use through technology and then um, ultra-high efficient devices so that, you know, although natural gas is a fossil fuel, it's relatively clean and we're focused on uh, very highly efficient end-use devices to, to uh, use it. Um, if you fast-forward your smart grid vision, say, 5, 10, 15 years, and you have this you know, incredibly um, large capacity in terms of distributed energy across smart homes, smart enterprise, and so forth, what, what happens to the role of a utility, and how does your business model change fundamentally? Well, I think that's the $63,000 question. You know, it's something that we think a lot about. I think, you know, over a 30-year horizon or so, um, and most, most anybody I've, you know, talked to or listened to, certainly from the core functions of um, distribution of gas and electricity, I mean, I think that stays. Most visions of the smart grid, zero net or not, 
envision that there needs to be the ability to move power from you know wholesale layer to residential and back. So I think you know the the transmission and distribution function of the utility is is probably going to be necessary for the foreseeable future. Um, how we um, you know how we support end use customers, smart homes, smart business, electric vehicles, all those all those things I think are going to be. Um, you know, the policies in those regards are going to be set over the next several years. Right now, it's, it's very, it's anybody's guess, really. What is, a, what is Obama doing when he's done? Sorry? What does Obama do when he's done? Thank questions? you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.